Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. How often does our past impact our future? There's a defining moment in the life of Reginald Dwayne Betts that follows him today. It's a moment that others who serve time in prison can relate to. Except all of us make mistakes. Why is it ex-offenders are the ones society wants to judge forever? Today where we live, Betts joins me in studio to talk about his life. The lawyer and poet has a new collection of poetry out called Felon. It focuses on life after prison. Maybe it's something you or someone in your life has experienced. We want to hear from you today. The number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome Reginald Dwayne Betts to our Hartford studios, a New Haven resident. Uh, Can I call you Dwayne? Please do. And thank you for having me. It's, It's really fun. Uh, we've been waiting for a long time to speak with you, and it's a perfect opportunity with this uh, third collection of poetry out uh, called Felon. Uh, but I wanted to uh, have our listeners learn a little bit more about you, uh, Dwayne. And so I wanted to uh, go back to when you were 16. Uh, where were you growing up, and uh, what do you remember about being 16? Uh, what do I remember? <laughs> I don't know. I was growing up in um, PG County, Suitland, uh, PG County, Maryland. So Prince George's County? Oh, Prince George's <laughs> County, yeah. Uh, Suitland. And what do I remember? I mean, I was a high school student. I remember, um, maybe I remember 15 more, actually, because, you know, I turned 16 on November 5th, 1996. And I got locked up on um, December 8th, 1996. So most of my 16 was spent incarcerated. But I remember 15. I mean, I was like JV basketball team. Um, I remember my classes, remember my, my teachers. I think I was the class treasurer. I actually was. I haven't said that out loud in 20 <laughs> years. Um, I was the class treasurer. I remember picking out class colors. And and I guess I remember, you know, being constantly torn between two, three, four different worlds. You know, you go to a school where there's the expectation that everybody around you will go to college. I was in the honors program. I was in honors classes. I never got a C, and uh, never got a C in high school. Mostly B's, a few A's. So I remember being in a place where the expectation was that you would go to college, but you weren't learned the, the steps that you had to take. I was in tenth grade, eleventh grade, and had not even drafted a college essay. I had taken a PSAT and had never seen any practice question before we took it. So. I remember being more or less though a typical student, and, and it's interesting because I'm running down this list of things, and I don't think anything on the list I've just run down predicts me taking a gun and carjacking somebody. And it's not to say that I'm trying to hide from these other aspects of my character. It's just to say that even when I reflect on it, it was more or less unpredictable. I, I smoked weed, but I wasn't running around in the street with pistols. I knew friends who sold drugs, but I wasn't really selling drugs. I mean, I might have sold weed for a week and a half. I wasn't good at it. So I don't know if um, 
if even when I go back to that time, it's a good predictor for everything that happened after. So take us to that day uh, where uh, you mentioned uh, you were involved in a, a carjacking. Who were you with? I was with, um, the only person name I know is Marcus Bullock, who is my man, my best friend. Uh, he was the best man at my wedding. I was the best man at his wedding. He uh, runs a company called Flick Shop, very successful. He was just here, actually, for my book release party. And so um, I was with him. It was interesting. As he was 15, I was 16, and nothing predicted that we would have necessarily committed that crime. And also, having committed that crime, nothing predicted that we would be where we are today. But it was me, him, and three guys whose names, two of them, I, I don't think I ever knew that name. One, I knew his nickname. Um, but it was sort of the five of us. And uh, it was four of us. And then the fifth person came, and that was the person that had the pistol. And I don't know. I don't know how you go from just talking trash back and forth with friends about money, not having money, war stories, to actually jumping into a car to drive and commit a carjacking. And I think I get it. You know, people want these real answers, and they want explanations that sort of satisfy them. But the problem really is that... um. Some things are just the spontaneity and unpredictably unpredictability of being young and having access to ruin. Because if 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 the cousin wouldn't have came with the pistol, like none of these things would have happened. And that's the only time I ever met this guy. And I don't think everybody's life is like that. I think some people could say, well, you know, my sort of journey to the prison was a series of small steps that I could map out. I could say when I was ten. I saw my first gun. I could say when I was 12, I started selling weed. When I was 14, I started selling crack. I could say when I was 15, I was in a bunch of street fights. I could say when I was 17, I was pretty much out on the street all day. I mean, some people could tell that kind of story. That's really not the story I have. I mean, my story is is, is random to the point of absurdity. I go to a friend's house who I know, and I meet two people who I don't. And then, you know, the five of us, carjack somebody, and I end up in prison for eight and a half years. Take us to that moment. So you were in the car uh, with these other uh, uh, teenage boys, and you ended up at a at a mall. Yeah, I wrote about it in my first book, my memoir, Question of Freedom. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's actually, you know, I guess I could spend 20 pages writing about it, but the truth is it boils down to making a decision to rob somebody, going to the mall, uh, me wanting a gun, imagining that if you had the gun, at least you got some type of control over, like, nothing worse happening. You know, you're in a situation where it's like inertia. You're already moving, and you kind of can't stop the train. So you try to make some decisions that give you control as you know you headed to some type of disaster, right? So I had the gun, and the gun was on safety. Um not that that matter, except to say that I know I didn't know how to take it off safety. And uh, and yeah, it was a guy sleeping in his car, and we knocked on the I knocked on the window, and um, told him to get out of his car, and literally he get out of his car. I throw the gun in the passenger seat, like this is how you know, um, absurd all of it is. I could imagine if he would have saw me throw the gun, he'd have been like, what? But um, but he didn't see it because he was he was probably terrified, 
And, and we got caught the next day and um, confessed pretty much immediately and then uh, went to prison. You said uh, there were no predictors uh, that uh, were uh, obvious uh, that led you to that moment when you were arrested and then ended up in prison. But tell me about your relationship with your family and what was that like uh, to face them after being arrested? Yeah, I mean, I think they knew it too. They knew that there were no predictors. They knew that I was supposed to be the, I was smart. I was like the one that was smart, supposed to do something with my life. But also, none of us were supposed to do this. So, like, forget what people might have expected of me. It is not a single person in my family, really, who at that point had been in prison. And so this was completely outside of the norm. It was unpredictable. And I don't know. I don't even know if I faced them. I mean, I faced my mom, talked to my mom a lot. But other people my, other people in my family, you just um, you kind of just deal with it. You know, I, I I never thought about this before, but I don't think I had a real conversation about any of these things with other members of my family. Like, I don't think I really acknowledged um, what this thing that I did might have meant for them. And it's hard to because, you know, it happened. I was 16, so I kind of needed them. And I needed them even as, like, even as, um, yeah, I needed them even as I had turned their life upside down. And and you can't really ask a 16-year-old to explain why they did this thing that, like, you would have betted everything you own would never happen. And so um, I think I got used at least for that eight years of, you know, I, I talked to my mom, but then I got used to imagining it, it was an artifact of the past. And you do your whole prison sentence trying to think about the crime as an artifact of the past, because if not, it becomes the, like, antecedent to every single thing you do while you're in prison, and it kind of weighs you down. Um, and so you can forget about it when you're in prison, too, because everybody's trying to forget about it, you know, like... People tell war stories and people sort of relive crimes, but at the end of the day, like, once you actually, at least for me, once I actually got to prison, people were trying to figure out a way for that artifact to be history. And if they did talk about it, it was, you know, you just, you, you know somebody, you've been at the same prison with them for three, four years. You might have had two conversations about your crime with them. Or you might have had one just to set the boundaries. Like, this is who I am. Let me let you know who I am. And then you never again talk about it. So it really does become this artifact of the past. And if I don't talk about it to the men I'm around, it's hard to say I got a 15-minute phone call and let me talk to you about how I put you in a position where you're paying $30 to talk to me for 15 minutes. And then you come home and, and you still don't talk about it because you've grown accustomed to not talking about it. My guest today is Reginald Dwayne Betts. He's a lawyer and a poet. His uh, third collection of poetry uh, just out titled Felon. Uh, You can join our conversation. Uh, Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So you're 16 when you're arrested, and this all happens where you are then uh, convicted of this crime. But 16 to many of us is uh, you're still a kid, but in the court, you were you were treated as an adult. Yeah, it was a legal mumbo jumbo. I was like five five and one hundred and twenty five pounds, and the prosecutor said I was a menace to society. I was dangerous, and 
was in the state of Virginia. Every state in the country really has a mechanism where you could try somebody as an adult. I mean, I public defender out here for a year, and I had 15-year-olds tried as an adult. So, so they tried me as an adult, and um, I pled guilty because I did it and carjacking Curry's life. So I was in Virginia. I was 16 years old, standing in front of the judge, a face of a life sentence, with, like, no guarantee of how much time he was sentenced me to. And he, he sentenced me to nine years, which was much better than life, but still a long time. Do you remember, you said that when you're 16, uh, the short time you have to speak with uh, people uh, in your life, uh, you're not thinking about uh, rehashing what happened. Uh, You're just thinking about uh, the day in front of you and what happens next. Um, Do you remember the first conversation that you had with a family member after you were sent to prison? Um, Not the first, I mean, you know, some of it was just, you okay in there, what you doing? I remember my aunt, she told me about Terrence Johnson. He had uh, he had just got out a little while ago. And he did 14, 15 years. Um, and then he went to law school. And my aunt was like, see, it's not over. You know, you could be like him. So I remember that. And you did end up going to law school. But what happened to Terrence? Oh, well, he ended up committing suicide. Um, yeah, he got out, was doing his thing, got rejected by Howard Law School, got admitted by UDC, and he was, uh, I think at the time he was a student at UDC, and uh, him and his brother tried to rob a bank, and when he got caught, he turned the gun on himself, and he committed suicide. I don't think my aunt knew, <laughs> knew that he committed suicide when she told me the story. I think that, uh, I think that uh, maybe she just caught part of the broadcast. Mm-hmm. I caught the rest of it, though. But she wanted to to motivate you. And so I guess at 16, you're in prison. You know, what did you do? And, uh, you know, how did you get through each day? Slowly. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't that hard. Maybe that's not true. Maybe it was maybe it was extremely difficult. But I was 16, though. So I was if if I would have been free, I would have been learning the world. So it's not as if I was doing something completely different. You know, I was 16. I was incarcerated. I was figuring out how to learn the world. And it's just that the world was prison. And I was figuring out how to find something of meaning and value. And that thing was books. And I just ran with it. Is that where you discovered poetry? Yeah, yeah. A couple years later. But that's definitely where I discovered poetry. Which is nice. I mean, I told myself I would be a writer. I was 16. I said, I, you got to be somebody. So you got to make some kind of decision. And had I not gone to prison, I'd have been an engineer. At least I thought I would have been. So I said, well, I'm going to be a writer because I know that you could be a writer with just a pen and paper. So that's luck would have it. Do you remember the, the first uh, poem that you wrote? Oh, uh, no, man. <laughs> I'm probably fortunate that I don't. You know, it probably was horrible. I'm sure it was to, yeah, it was horrible. Yeah. Did you write about uh, your life at the present moment or memories that you had? Well, I first started writing essays, and so they were more like uh, my own philosophical musings. And I, I wasn't really great at that time as a descriptive writer. I was, uh, was a little self-centered. 
<laughs> I might still be a little self-centered. And so I was like more interested in like writing out my own thoughts about things, but not really locating it in a place or context, you know. And um, and then later on, I discovered poetry, and and that helped me give shape to what I was writing. It helped me give direction, and also, you know, the frame of the poem just gives you structure, and and structure gives you possibility in, in this weird way where, you know, like a novel at a young age, you can imagine it just being endless. But a poem, you read a hundred poems and all of them seem to be really intentional about where they start and where they end. Who were some of the poets you were reading while incarcerated? Um, Etheridge Knight, Lucille Clifton, uh, Sonia Sanchez, Inazaki Shange, Shange, um, Honoré Jeffers, actually, people I know now, Ethelbert Miller, Yusef Komiyaka, Michael Collier, Aga Shahid Ali, um, just like an endless Rita Dove, some early Rita Dove really changed changed how I thought about things. Um, I've read, I read everything, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were uh, writing and reading poetry, you're reading a lot of books, but you also took it upon yourself to learn Spanish while you were in prison. Why? <laughs> Um, because the dude in my cell was learning Spanish and I thought I was smarter than him. <laughs> that is just not a good reason to do anything. <laughs> no, no, man, the first person that took up for me when I was in prison was this cat that was, uh, you know, he was in MS-13. And uh, when I would go in the cell to talk to him and his homeboys, I couldn't talk to him because two of them just mostly spoke Spanish. And, I, and you know, the cat Snoop, he spoke English too, but he was around his homeboys and he wanted to communicate with them. And, and I just sort of felt like the language barrier and I sort of told myself I would learn Spanish. And then I met this guy in the yard. He was, uh, just years later, I met this guy in the yard. He had a novel. And I was like, okay, check it out. He gave it to me. And I was like, oh, man, this is Spanish. I was like, you Spanish? I'm like 16, you know. <laughs> he like, I'm Spanish. What kind of, what, what does that even mean? And um, I was like, man, you know, are you from Mexico? Or, you know, I'm young. And he like, nah. I'm like, oh, so where are your folks from? He like, Norfolk, man. What, what kind of questions are you asking me? Like, look, the book is in Spanish. Stop acting crazy. How do you speak Spanish? He's like, I taught myself Spanish. And I thought, damn. Can you say damn on the radio? <laughs> you just did. <laughs> I was like, man, he taught himself Spanish. I was like, I'm going to do this. And I asked him how, and he told me. And it took another four years before I got the wherewithal to actually try to do it. Um, but I did. And it was because of those two moments. You know, he made me know that it was possible. And Snoop made me know that it was desirable. Um, and so then I just, you know, got some books, started with like a kindergarten book in Spanish, read that, and then just got a textbook, and I wrote out the whole textbook by hand. I got a textbook, a Spanish um, textbook for like a high school, but I got one that was completely in Spanish so that I had to learn the language to actually do the questions and stuff. Found a dude on the yard that was a um, native Spanish speaker who also like spoke like the police. Um you know, somebody who had, like, really rigid and, like, you know, grammatically correct Spanish. And uh, and I had him checking my work for me, and I just I just did it. Five hours a day for, like, seven months. I ain't had nothing better to do. Hmm. Again, you spent eight and a half years in prison. 
again, from 16 to 24, these are, this is a real formative period in everyone's life. You were still a kid in prison. Were you also drawn to other, uh, you know, teenagers that you met? And yeah, yeah, I'm, I still know dudes now that I've known for twenty years. We all got locked up as teenagers. All started doing our beer together. And again, you know, we say sixteen and seventeen, and, and it makes it sound good, so that you know you're drawing this artificial line between what it is to be seventeen and eighteen. But really, all of us as teenagers, we were the same. And in fact, you know, the dudes I know, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, all the way up to twenty-one. You know, we were all like significantly younger um, in all kinds of ways than everybody else around us. And um, so a lot of those guys I still know and still talk to. I don't still talk to all of them um, just because people do their time in different ways, Mm -hmm. but it's a few I talk to on a regular basis. Reginald Dwayne Betts is my guest today. He's a poet and a lawyer. His new collection of poetry is called Felon. Uh, We're going to continue to talk with uh, Dwayne after the break. We're going to hear more about uh, what was life like for him after he was released from prison. And we're going to hear some of the poems that he's written in Felon. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest, Reginald Dwayne Betts, wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine in 2018 titled, Could an Ex-Convict Become an Attorney? I Intended to Find Out. Spoiler, Betts did become a lawyer, but he's also a poet, and his latest collection of poetry reveals what it's like to be a black man with a criminal record. Uh, that volume of poetry titled Felon. Uh, Reginald, you were telling us, uh, Reginald Dwayne Betts, you were telling us about uh, your time in prison. Uh, when you were released, where did you go first? Oh, man. I remember, I'm just like pretending like I don't. Uh, I know the first thing I listened to was um, T.I. It was, I think it was the album, The King. So I remember that, and I went to a, a vegan restaurant in the D.C. area. Yeah, that's the first thing I did. Did you go to your mom's house? After that. She was moving, so it was interesting, because... uh. She didn't tell me she had bought a new house. Actually, we had lived in a townhouse. And so I went there and, um, I don't know, time is just, is a weird thing because you, you think the world changes and it does a little bit, but then you come home and it hasn't changed as much. So, like, the place looked the same, except it just didn't look or feel, like, big enough for me. 
because I remembered it as a kid, you know, and, and all of a sudden, like the steps felt too narrow. And so it was kind of cool to, to feel like my whole perception of it, like reinforced this loss, but not necessarily in the worst way. And uh, and then we were moving, so it felt like a new beginning, you know. So, um, so yeah, I came home to a, a house full of boxes. Did you set out to, to find a job right away, or what was going through your mind? Because, again, uh, you spent eight and a half years in prison. You didn't have a college degree. And, of course, everyone wants to find out, you know, were you worried about that time in your life? Um, nah, my man Marcus came home before me, so he came home a year before me. And he, All right, I'm going to tell this story. It has two stories, right? <laughs> so I came home. This fool, he lets me uh, he lets me drive the day I come home, and uh, and I got a cell phone the day I came home, right? So like the phone's ringing, I'm reaching in my pocket to answer the phone. I don't let the wheel go. <laughs> He's like, "Yo, pull over, get out the car." <laughs> and I remember, um, and also I didn't have my glasses yet, so I could kind of like barely see, uh, and everything was like against all of the rules, right? Because I'm on probation, I'm not supposed to hang around with people with criminal records. I'm not supposed to hang around with Marcus mm-hmm. at all. And it's like, wait a minute. I just came home, and this is the dude that's making sure I'm straight. Like, this is who is teaching me how to drive. This is who is he ended up helping me get my first job because he was working at um, at this paint store called Duron. And the thing is, he had been out a year before me, so he had struggled. He had got denied 20, 30 jobs. Then he applies to Duron, and it says, have you been convicted of a felony in the past seven years? And he's like, well... I got locked up seven and a half years ago. So I'm going to go ahead and say no. Now that he says no, he needs a story about why his resume is so thin. He happened to be at some prisons that had college courses. So he just, you know, he was like, well, I was down south. I was living with family. I was in a community college. Because the transcript just says the community college where he was enrolled in. So when I come home, he, uh, he says, look, apply here. I got you an interview. So he hooked me up with an interview. It was uh, the 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 guy that was doing the interview was black, and same question. So I just said no, and then I told him I was down south trying to be a writer, you know. So not I can handle myself at interviews. So I got I got the job, and I remember working in a paint store and, and just like seeing other dudes come in and try to get jobs, but announce that they had criminal records, and I would see how the manager shut down. Like, this is not a possibility for you anymore. And so um, I was scraped, though. Man, I got that job within, like, three weeks of being home. Uh, the, the, the real struggle was, uh, excuse me, um, I went to DMV nine times trying to get a license. First time I went, I didn't have my birth certificate. Then I didn't have my Social Security card. Then I didn't have proof of residence. I had mail some junk mail. It's like, that doesn't count. I was like, it has my name on it. And every time it was just something else, right? So nine times in one month, I went to DMV. And I think um, it's funny because if, if I tell this story, you know, 10 years ago, somebody's going to judge me by the story and say, see, this is why it's so hard for you to get a job. You're not competent enough to get a license. But I could tell the story now, partly because I could say, like, nobody prepares you to do those things. And if you've been doing these things since you were 16, 
you actually don't know. Like when you're helping me, you assume that I know everything you know because you have this accumulated knowledge that you got slowly, right? You, you slowly understood the importance of your Social Security card. Why would I know about my Social Security card? Like why would I care about that little piece of paper when I haven't seen it since I was eight and it's never been a need for it? Mm. If you ask me what my state number is, I know that. And so, so part of the struggle was how much like knowledge I didn't have and I was moving around the world with people who had all of it. Um, but part of my success, or sort of part of my blessing, was that like Marcus had did a bunch of this stuff before me. And, and I was able to do the job. I mean, the people at the paint store, they didn't even know I'd never had a job before. You know, I'm working to register. Like literally, I, this is almost the first time I've touched the computer since, you know, I was 16. And I'm working to register, I'm mixing up the paint, I'm talking to customers, and I had slipped one time and said, yeah, this is my first job. And he was like, "This, your, you 24, this is your first job? I said, no, nah, I mean, that's my first job in D.C. Like, <laughs> of course this ain't my first job. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would uh, go on to uh, try to get a college degree. So first community college, and then where did you go? Well, no, the first thing I did was I went to University of Maryland. It was in uh, March, April, and... Uh, <laughs> And I, I said I wanted to go to college. And they said, well, you know the semester's already started. And I was like, that's fine. I'm a quick learner. I didn't know what the word semester meant because why would I, right? And um, I ended up letting the guy know that I'd been to prison. And he said, well, you should go to community college. Because first, this is March. So it's in the second semester of the school year. And they've already picked the class for the next year at University of Maryland. And I didn't know any of this stuff, right? And so he tells me to go to community college. So I went to community college. And uh, I tested in the honest English, and um, you had to go get permission to take it. So I went to the person I had to sign off on. Her name is uh, Dr. Melinda Frederick. And I remember the first thing she said to me was, uh, why are you starting school so late? I mean, you seem like a pretty smart guy based on your test scores. I was like, well, I was in prison. <laughs> and she was like, you was in prison? You must have did something really stupid. And I was like, yeah, I did. You know, I told her. And um, so then she enrolled me in, in an honors program. And she ultimately, ultimately ended up being one of my advisors and, 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 like, one of my mentors. And she wrote me recommendations for everything. So I would meet people who I would tell that I'd been to prison because I was tired of trying to, like, how do you explain all of these things you don't know without making yourself seem, like, really obtuse? Like, were you under a rock somewhere? I would just say, yes, I actually was under a rock. You know, I was in prison. And that way, you might judge me because I've been in prison, but at least you weren't judging me for these things that I, that I didn't know because I was somehow just like, I don't know, sleep for the last eight years. So you were being honest, but talk us, tell us about, you know, some of the doors that you saw closed because people knew that you had a record. Yeah, yeah so I got the scholarship to... Um, Community college had a full tuition scholarship there. Then I had a full tuition scholarship to the University of um, to Howard, and because it was a part of a program. So if you had a full tuition scholarship in this program at the community college, you was guaranteed a spot at Howard and a scholarship, right? And when I went to fill out the paperwork, me and my classmates, it was like three of us. Um, I already wrote the application and I already explained that I had a criminal record, but because it was a guaranteed scholarship, nobody read it. 
you know. So when I went to fill out the paperwork, um, the form had the box on it. So I said, yeah, well, situation. And I talked to Dr. Frederick, and she was like, yeah, we should go in the room. So we went in the room, and I was telling the woman, and uh, she was like, well, and I tried to sign, you know. She slid the form away from me, and she said they would get back to me, and they never got back to me. And um, and in fairness to Howard, I also never followed up. But the thing is, I'm, you know, my 20s, I applied to the university. You said you would get back to me. I expect you to get back to me. But also, I'm running. You know, I'm trying to figure out how to live. So I'm really also not going to wait for people who told me no. I'm going I'm to I'm go to plan B. I'm going to go to plan C. And so um, I applied for a full tuition scholarship at the University of Maryland. I got that was academic scholarship. Graduated from there. Um, was the commencement speaker when I graduated. I got into grad school at the same time. So I was I was pretty successful academically. So it's not like, so. The, but the thing is, so I don't want to act like I just had this huge burden coming home because I think that's unfair. But at the same time, because I've had all these successes, I don't want to pretend like it's easy for everybody. You know, I, I just responded in a different way, maybe because I had different resources. But the truth is, you know, me and Therese was dating. We was about to get married. We had a kid. Like, I just didn't have the ability to just, like, shut it down. I didn't have the ability to say, knock on Howard's door every day to see if they were willing to let me in. I had to say, you know what? You said no. I got it. I saw the look in your face. I'm going to go on to the next door and see what happens to the next one and the, and the next one and the next one. But getting denied was real. You know, getting denied, applying for jobs, not getting jobs, all of that was real. But I just, I mean, I just pushed, got lucky, pushed some more, got lucky, you know. You ended up uh, going to Yale Law School, which is uh, one of the most prestigious law schools in the country. When did you decide you wanted to be a lawyer? When I couldn't get a job doing anything <laughs> else. <laughs> and also, I'm, I, I think by right, I got to say that Yale Law School is the most prestigious law school. The most prestigious, uh, yes. Because I, I got to have a certain amount of um, um, unearned arrogance <laughs> to fit in, you know. But um, it's a great school. I'm going to tell you, like, a couple of things. It's like, uh, I was at Harvard on a fellowship, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do next because I had been applying for jobs to teach poetry and not getting these jobs and not even getting interviews. And I had had two award-winning books, and I felt like where I was, I hadn't turned 30 yet, two award-winning books, one that I was partly done. I had a fellowship at Harvard. I felt like I was a prime candidate for these entry-level, low-paying writing jobs, right? But I can't even get an interview. And you can't convince me that this is because of anything else besides prison. They don't even have to do a background check. I sent them a CV, and it says, a question of freedom, learning, survival, and coming of age in prison. It just announces convict, right? And my other book, Shahid Reads His Own Palm, is all about prison, too. So they sort of understand that this is who I am. And they dismiss me because of it, right? And people will say, well, maybe it was something else. People have said it to me. Maybe your CV wasn't good. Get out of here. <laughs> My CV? So now we're going to blame it on the resume? I had a fellowship at Harvard. So one day I'm at Harvard's law school's cafeteria, and, and me and my friend Uzo Awela, who wrote Beast of No Nation, we would go there to write because we didn't know anybody in the law school. So we could write in a place that's really noisy where nobody would talk to us. And a woman said, Uzo. And um, he was like, yeah, what's going on? Eventually. And he was like, why are you here? She had went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, 
and then decided to go. And he was like, well, why are you here? And she said, well, I, I knew I wasn't finished school. And I was trying to decide if I wanted to get a Ph.D. in English or go to law school. And I decided to go to law school. And I'm sitting there thinking, so people could just decide to go. To, I'm going to law school. And, um, and I decided to go to law school. And I, I did. I had been doing advocacy work for seven years. I had taken a paralegal course while I was in prison. I've written my own habeas corpus petition when I was in prison. I've written somebody else's. So it's not as if the law was foreign to me. But what I mean is I knew these things. I did these things. I've been on panels with lawyers for the past seven years, been keynote speakers at different conferences. But I didn't imagine being a lawyer until this woman told me that she made a, that she had the freedom to just imagine herself being this thing just because she wasn't finished with school. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, wait, if she could do this, I could do this. And um, so I did it, and I ended up at Yale, and it was, it was great for all kinds of reasons, but mostly because it was my first experience, like being a student in a community. Every other school, I was just like, I had family. I was just trying to get it done. Mm-hmm. But at Yale, I was a student in the community, and I loved it. You ended up uh, graduating. Again, my guest, Reginald Dwayne Betts, graduating from Yale Law School. I understand you uh, interned with the New Haven Public Defender after you graduated. I, I wanted you to just read uh, one of the poems out of your uh, third collection of poetry titled uh, Felon. Cool. So, yeah, I was a fellow at the New Haven Public Defender's Office. Uh, Trey Bruce was my supervisor and attorney. And some of these poems come out of that. And this one comes out of that um, a bit. For a bail denied... Avi, I won't tell you how it ended, and his mother won't either. But beside me, she stood, and some things neither of us could know. And now all is lost, lost is all, and what came after. The kid, and we should call him kid, call him a child, his face smooth, and without history of a razor, he shuffled, ghostly, into court. And let's just call it a cauldron and admit his nappy head made him blacker than whatever pistol he held, whatever solitary awaited. The prosecutor's bald head was black or brown, but when has brown not begin, not been akin to black hair, to abyss, and does it matter, black lives, when all he said of black boys was that they kill. The child beside his mother, and his mother beside me, and I am not his father, just the public defender near starving here, where the state turns men, women, children into numbers, seeking something more useful than a guilty plea. And this boy beside me is withering on the brink of life and broken, and it's all possible because the judge spoke and the kid says, I did it, I did it, I did it. I mean, Jesus. Someone wailed, and the boy's mother yells, this ain't justice. You can't throw my son into that ocean. She meant jail. And we was powerless to stop it and too damn tired to be beautiful. Again, that's Reginald Dwayne Betts, uh, my guest today, who a poet and lawyer, reading from his third collection of poetry titled Felon. Uh, you were telling us about uh, your life experiences. Uh, that word felon, that label, that has followed you up until this day? I mean, you know, it's inter- even in that poem, I mean, it's interesting because what the kid says is I did it. I did it. I mean, I did it. So part of it is like the label follows you, but but the guilt follows you. And the, and the fact that you did it follows you. And, and I'm not sure how a person is supposed to escape that. I mean, I kind of think that like the point isn't even to escape that. The point is that um, 
when you're in prison, it's just this artifact I was saying earlier, you know, so me and my family didn't have to talk about it. I didn't have to confront what I did in conversations with them. And so therefore, I didn't have to think about what it meant for me to have made somebody a, like a victim of a crime. Right. Um, but post incarceration, it's always there and it's not always there in the ways that help you figure out what the world should look like. It's usually there in ways that sort of kind of cast you aside. And so what I wanted to do with this book is to say, um, let me explain what it is to grapple with this and try to let me let me explain what it is to grapple with it without without pretense. You know, it's not a book that's just arguing that all should have been forgotten and you do your time and you just move on. Because, you know, even with my family, it's like, what do you mean, Dwayne? No, you don't do your time and just move on. We still got to deal with all of this stuff that you left out here in the world that you ain't grappled with for the eight years you were in prison. So it's not you do your time and you move on necessarily, but it's like how do we create a system in which um, folks could build bridges instead of, you know, burn them down and where the community could build bridges instead of burning them down. And I think felon is both me trying to reveal who this subsection of folks are post-incarceration, what this experience is, and to reveal it in such a way that the reader says, that reminds me of my cousin, my uncle, and not just my cousin or my uncle or my sister because they've been in prison, but because they've experienced this thing. They've experienced what it means to be a mother who wants your son not to suffer in some kind of way and feel like nobody else is there. Like, everybody knows what it means to be too damn tired to be beautiful. I mean, like, that's like, you know, that's that's the end of the work week. You know, that's working 17-hour days. And so if you hear that and you connect to it, then maybe you think again about some of the other things that preceded what was said there and say, oh, you know what? I haven't experienced that, but but I get it now. You know, so that's what I'm trying to do is make people, like, imagine that these lives in this book aren't foreign, that there is no such thing as foreign, in fact. You know, that foreign is an invention to make us think that there's more distance that separates us than things that bring us together. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Reginald Dwayne Betts. We're going to continue our conversation with him right after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest was sentenced to prison when he was 16 years old. But that wasn't the end of his story. Today, Reginald Dwayne Betts is a lawyer and a poet. His latest collection of poetry is called Felon. This volume focuses on life after incarceration, more than the struggles to find a job or a place to live, but also the missed years with loved ones and the personal reckoning of the actions that led to prison. Felon also explores the criminalization of poverty. Uh, Dwayne, I, I wanted you to talk about some interesting uh, structures of poems in Felon where uh, there's actually uh, there are parts of redacted documents. Can you describe uh, where you thought about this and maybe read from one of them? Uh, yeah, so, so they're legal documents. And the thing was I went to law school to become a lawyer, but maybe I went to law school to become like more myself. And I should say... Um, I was in a, a, a class with professor, she's now Dean, Dean Heather Gherkin, and when I knew I made the right decision to go to Yale because at the end of the semester she had a poetry contest. And I was like, she got a poetry contest? And I won I won a poetry contest, but I won the Bill Wharton Award, which was like professionals playing with amateurs. 
But the point was, like, um, as an institution, I felt, like, connected to this art that I already loved, and it was great. And so I'm there, and while I'm there, the see um, Civil Rights Corps starts to sue cities for locking people up because they couldn't pay bail or because they couldn't pay small fees. And so they filed these lawsuits to say the way you treated these people was unconstitutional. But the lawsuits are 70 pages long. There's a lot of legalese, and, like, I don't want to read it, so I know that most folks who aren't attorneys don't want to read it either. But it's real poetry there in a sense that it's just the substance of justice. You know, it's just the substance of having a system that, where you could say, I was wrong, fix it. And so I turned those 70-page documents into four or five-page poems that were sort of just trying to articulate why this thing mattered. And I used redaction to get rid of what was superfluous as opposed to saying that this stuff is like above your pay grade. I was saying, no, this stuff is actually irrelevant, and this is what's, what's relevant. So I'll read a section of, of In Alabama. In Alabama, in the middle of Alabama, plaintiffs versus the city of Montgomery. The plaintiffs, impoverished, jailed by the city, unable to pay traffic tickets, pay or sit in jail. $50 per day, plaintiffs unable to pay each sent to jail, told they could work off debts. $25 per day, cleaning the city, scrubbing feces and blood from jail floors. Uh, we we'll just have a few minutes left, uh, Dwayne. I'm talking to you uh, today. Uh, where it's election day in Connecticut, among uh, other states, uh, depending on where someone lives after they serve their sentence. Even the right to vote doesn't come easy. In Connecticut, you even have to pay uh, certain fines related to your felony before you're able to vote. Uh, you're also a member of the Criminal Justice Commission in Connecticut, appointed by uh, Governor Lamont, I believe. Yep. Uh, what does that mean to you today to be part of uh, this commission and thinking about how criminal justice reforms and policies should roll out here in Connecticut? I mean, I, I say two things. It's like this sort of intersection of, you know, you got so many places where the right to vote is diminished based on you having been incarcerated. You come home, sometimes they say you have to be off probation and parole to be able to vote. And that's like a a push towards saying that you aren't a part of a whole member of the community. And I think when the governor appointed me to the Criminal Justice Commission, which actually hires the prosecutors in the state, that's the governor saying that, like, we want you not just a part of the community, but a part of this really vital institution that's deciding, really, who should be the people who have a huge say in who goes to prison. And so that's been a, um, you know, it's been a humbling experience. I think it's, it's been hard work. I think and I think it's actually made me realize that most of us don't take as seriously as we should what it means to send somebody to prison, but also what it means to make some like to rob somebody. You know, we don't take seriously. I mean, I, I worked in the public defender's office. I worked on a domestic violence docket. You know, like violence is real and we don't take seriously how to address the harms that happen in our community. And I think um, just this role has allowed me again to see the whole picture of what's going on. And, and I mean, I hope the book reflects that. Like the book is not just a, a call to say I'm criticizing people who use the word felon. The book is a call to say this is like a a complicated thing. And, and, and when I say that I carry it and I say that we who have been in prison carry it, everybody carries it. You, you carry it if you've been a victim of a crime. You've carried it if you know somebody who's been a victim of a crime and you definitely carry it if your family member has been in prison. And so um, even being on that commission, it's like 
it's like a reminder to make something useful of uh, that eight and a half years I spent away. And, and sort of more useful than just a, a complaint about how long my time was. Reginald Dwayne Betts, again, uh, is a lawyer and a poet. His third collection, titled Felon. Uh, it was a pleasure to speak with you, uh, Dwayne. I wish we had more time. Me too. <laughs> this daylight savers time messed us up. <laughs> uh, I should mention that uh, Dwayne Betts has a reading at Yale uh, this Thursday, November 7th. We'll have information at our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. And it's also your birthday today. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Uh, thanks to our technical producer, Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.